Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the next part of our Who's Next webinar series on various cybersecurity topics. This time, we are going to talk about strategies for cyber resilience. Uh, together with uh, Ben de la Salle, uh, our guest speaker today. I'm Peter Budai. I'm the Chief Technology Officer of Trezorit. And here at Trezorit, I have actively been participating in developing our end-to-end -end encrypted cloud collaboration products for our customers to help them protect their valuable digital assets in the cloud. In my current role, uh, I'm also overseeing the works of our uh, IT team, IT security teams, and product security teams. So it is a great pleasure to me to welcome uh, my partner for today, uh, Ben de la Salle. Ben is the founder of the ICA Consultancy, a firm uh, that provides information and cybersecurity, uh, information cybersecurity and data protection consultancy services, interim and fractional resourcing, and specialist security services. Ben, thank you very much for joining us today. Please tell a few words about uh, yourself and what are your areas of focus or special interest today or nowadays. Thank you, Peter. Um, so, yes, so I've been working in um, security and data protection for just over 25 years now, uh, back when cybersecurity was IT security and we didn't quite have the media support and board support that we have today. Um, our firm is, is focused on providing what we call capability as a service. So, um, you know, we help organizations on the topic of cyber resilience, helping them focus uh, what budget they do have on the priorities that are specific to their business and the way that they operate. And um, more recently, a lot of our work has been around strategy development, um, both in terms of tactical initiatives, but also in some of those longer term initiatives. Uh, to help organizations improve their maturity. Okay, that's uh, really cool. So before we, we begin uh, our talk today, I'd like to turn to our audience for a moment, and I would I'd like to invite them to ask your questions throughout the webinar in the Q&A window that you can uh, find in, in Zoom. And we'll try to answer uh, your questions towards the end of, the, uh, of this webinar. And I already see someone has uh, uh, posted a question. So keep keep up, keep this up, uh, everyone. Okay, so our topic for today is our strategy, strategies for cyber, cyber resilience. But let's have a step backwards and uh, talk about cyber, cyber resilience on its own. How would you define cyber resilience, Ben? What additional aspects does cyber resilience bring to other areas of cybersecurity? So I think the, the important thing to consider is that cyber, cyber resilience doesn't mean that we are going to manage all risks down to zero, that we are not going to be, um, we're not going to be dealing with, with cyber threats and, and incidents. What we mean by cyber resilience, and I think the Bank of England do a really good job of, of expressing this, is our ability to withstand cyber threats, to absorb any of the impacts that might be experienced from that, and to recover quickly. And I think that expresses it really well when we're talking about cyber resilience, because 
very few organizations will have zero tolerance and the funding to support zero tolerance to cyber risk. Therefore, we do need to look at how do we uh, reduce the likelihood of key um, threats and risks to organizations. And if they do happen, and, and more often when they do happen, how do we withstand, absorb and recover? Uh, I think putting it in those terms and expressing that in those terms and getting people to understand that's what we mean by resilience will certainly help any future conversations and, and requests for support and funding. Mm -hmm. uh, at this point, I think we need to reiterate a bit of why do we think or why it is important to talk about this topic at all. So obviously, uh, cyber resilience and cybersecurity can be mandated by regulations, can be mandated by uh, by a requirement for compliance for for uh, uh, for given regulations. That is an important factor, but uh i think it's there's another uh, other reason for for dealing it uh, and it's it's a much better one is that when we become aware of of the business impact and the impacts on on any kind of cybersecurity threat uh to our company uh we it it became obvious that this is something that, that we need to uh deal with and um I, I'm pretty sure Ben that you have some have a lot of experiences with your with your clients uh, about uh, threat uh, cybersecurity threats and uh, and their effects. Could you please share us some uh, like general examples or general trends that uh, you need to be aware of when it comes to a cybersecurity attack? Yes, yeah, so I think it. I mean, obviously, the world is 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 changing and and moving at quite a pace, and actually, regulation is trying to keep up with that. So, a lot of organisations, whether it's as simple as us talking about data protection regulations or through to highly regulated industries are starting to feel the pressure from regulators and the need to, you know, the requirement to notify if they do have a cyber incident. Some of that that we're seeing now at the moment, some of the, the notification windows are becoming ever smaller. So India now has a six hour notification window from the point you become aware of, a, of an incident. Um, but I think it's important that organizations understand that cyber isn't just an IT issue. A lot of the answers to cyber seem to fall into technology or people and process around that technology. But actually the impacts are much further, um, much more widespread felt across an organization. So when we look at assessing potential impacts of, of cyber risk realizing, we tend to consider things like the operational impact, the reputational impact, the people impact, and then financial revenue impacts that could come from that. And some of those are linked, obviously, a loss of a loss of trust through you know, poor reputation following that could lead to loss of revenue, loss of earnings. And actually, when you start to think about how you respond to these incidents, again, there's a technical response to it, but there's also a business response to it as well. And that's something we work with organisations on to help them practice. So, when they're thinking about should uh, should everyone's worst nightmare happen and, and data be lost, and that be in the control of, of some um, malicious individuals who are demanding a ransom from you to not publish this information. That's not a technical decision to pay the ransom. It might be fed by technical elements, like whether you can recover from backups, whether you have that data still at hand. But the decision to make that payment is very much a business decision. And therefore, we need to consider cyber is as an organization-wide issue. And when we think about cyber resilience, we have to have 
multiple stakeholders involved in in how we manage that. Mm -hmm. So, we, so we could say that, like you you mentioned, like service impacts, data impacts, or uh, operation impacts. So, you might be uh, might not be able to provide your services during the cybersecurity incident. You might not might not be able to, uh, or as you mentioned, you might be able to uh, to pay a ransomware fee if you are not prepared, or you you might need to spend a lot of human resources and and effort on preparing the the report for the for the um, authorities when you need to report within six days, and you will need to plan with those. And I think we can agree on that indirectly. So directly or indirectly, this will this will uh, have an effect on your on your revenue or uh, or on your cost. So so it's that's in the simplest term that yeah, this is the business reason that that any yeah. cybersecurity threat at the end of the day will cost you a loss of revenue or loss of business uh, or increased cost. And sometimes, uh, and we we've experienced this in organisations. It's not the direct cyber attack that that means that you're unable to service your customers. It's the actions you're taking to protect your business mean that you might have to shut down the systems which are unaffected to protect mm -hmm. them from being affected. So actually, there's a lot of ripples from a successful cyber attack that during your response and the time afterwards, an organization has to consider. And it's not just you know technology issues. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now that we are aligned on the importance, of course, we were always we we do were always aligned, uh, but uh, fortunately, the audience is also uh, aligned. Let's shift our focus and uh, let's talk about how to prepare against these uh, these uh, risks and uh, and threats. Why should one or not? Why sorry? Where should one start to uh, building up cyber resilience? I think I think it's important for any organization of any scale to start with understanding what's important to them. So um, I don't think it really matters how large a business you are and how big your budget is. You never have enough money to protect absolutely everything in the organization. So you need to understand its criticality and its value. And, and actually, that's one of the kind of building blocks of you know, good security even to the point of actually good IT management is understanding what you have understanding where it is and understanding its value. Um, and I think, you know, there was there were two school of thoughts, I think, when GDPR came out. There were the, those of those that thought, actually, it was very onerous and it was going to be very complex. It was going to be very hard for businesses to implement. And there were those of us, and I was one of them, that was pleased we were having an opportunity to actually map out our data and work out what's really important um, and start to understand a bit more about the business. And um, so I think, if we can get to a position of understanding where your data is, understanding what's important to you, is it within your control? Is it within a third party? Understanding that life cycle, you can then start to apply targeted controls to manage the security of those assets. Um, and then I think it's about um, understanding that if something does go wrong, how are we going to know and how are we going to be able to respond to that? And often when we talk to organizations around improving their maturity, we say, look, you, you can't be, well, firstly, most organizations can't be the best in class, right? Because actually they don't have enough money and they have plenty of other things to be doing other than you know, building Rolls-Royce security solutions. So we do say to them, look, you know, we've really got to think about where we focus. And we tend to say to them, look, you know, using the NIST cybersecurity framework as a model, there's some, there's some 
quality work that we can do in, in identify. So we understand the risk to the business and we understand the impacts to it. There's some focus we can put around detection and making sure that we can identify when um, our controls fail and there's something malicious happening. And then we focus into the, the respond piece. Because actually, if we go back to the kind of withstand, absorb and recover, that those three areas will feed the rest of that. So if you identify a risk, you will identify controls to manage that risk, you'll implement them. If you detect when those controls have failed, you can then respond and do something about it. So for us, that's kind of where we'd like to start is know what you've got, know what the risks are to it and understand how you can respond to, to incidents should they occur. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's uh, I also agree that's important, and uh, I would like to like at this point reflect back to the uh, to the regulations and compliance that mean then because as a someone responsible for 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 IT security and compliance, partly responsible for compliance at our company as well, I see that the regulations and these compliance requirements help you to be much more uh, much more um, so like rigorous on how to like have all your uh, IT uh, all your um, critical systems in uh, in an inventory and and practice your uh, write down your procedures and practice your and reiterate them so that's how i see the 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 benefits of 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 compliance is that they force you to to do these type of exercises so it's um, i think it's yeah great. there's i think there, there's I mean, we're not going to get into a conversation today about regulations and about the, yeah, the details. Within no. the, you know, we can we can have conversations about the difference between the kind of stuff that we see in the UK and the kind of stuff that we see in the financial services market in Singapore, for example. But generally, what regulations do is, is provide a framework through which organisations can start to do the things they need to do. Um, they don't always go about it in the right way or the right way for every business, but it does build a structure that basically says, look, you need to know what's important to you. You need to protect it and you need to let us know when that protection has failed because we want to check you're doing the right things and responding to it. So, yeah, I think we're not going to debate whether regulation's right or not, but I think <laughs> it is one of the tools in our toolbox to ensure that actually we do the right things by data. Yeah, then let's move to like less controversial uh, area. So you mentioned... Uh that like knowing what's important uh, is is one of the most most uh, important things with cyber resilience and uh, critical systems or critical valuable things are not just data obviously but we can have critical systems as well nowadays we see that like more and more of the companies digital assets are in the cloud and move to the cloud uh, which which may make make uh are making this inventory much harder uh, than earlier how did our approach to cyber security changed with the emerge of of cloud-based services and software as a service components yeah it's interesting i mean um, i was probably part of the original school of thought that cloud is just someone else's computer uh, and i remember um we had plenty of stickers around the office when, when cloud was coming out uh, to that effect. But it did it did change the way that we had to think about security. So if you think about our traditional security, an analogy for it is we'd often call the analogy of a castle. We could build the high walls, we could build the moat, we'd have a drawbridge, which is the only authorised access point, and everything of value, the crown jewels, are within that castle. And actually what happened as we started 
to rely not just on cloud providers, but more third parties, more outsourcing, then the introduction of SaaS, IaaS, you know, so software as a service, infrastructure service, platform as a service. Our data started to leave that, that the walls and the confines of that castle. Um, and we look at that very much now like a, so as a theoretical perimeter, whereas previously, to use another analogy, we would talk about layers of an onion and keeping everything in the center and just building layers around to protect it. This move to greater use of third parties where we have no real direct control over the security controls and how they manage it means we fundamentally got to change the way that we look at how we protect that. Um, and that again, regulation back into it is being reflected in some of the regulations we're starting to see now in those more regulated markets like financial services which will eventually start to trickle down into to other industries and there's a big focus at the moment on ensuring that our resilience goes across both our own organization and all the third parties and that resilience includes cyber controls um, and actually we do kind of pass over the baton to these third parties when we give them their data we do trust that their ISO certificate means that they're actually taking it seriously and you know, God forbid, not just going through a tick pocket exercise so they can get a marketing tool in a ISO certificate. Um, you know, more, more and more people should be looking at placing reliance on things like SOC 2 Type 2 for SaaS solutions because that gives much more ongoing assurance over um, control effectiveness uh, in our view compared to something like 27,000. Um, but actually, you know, you are handing over your your crown jewels and saying both in terms of transit to you and whilst you've got it and who you share it with as a third party, I'm trusting you to keep that secure. Um, and I think, you know, just need to pick up the paper or, or look online at the news and see that organisations which are third parties providing services to other people are just as um, uh, target-rich environments and in the industry in which they serve as well. So, um the approach has to change and, and has been changing. Um, I think third party supplier assurance has got a long way to go to mature. I think we're still just picking at small indicators to see whether an organization is secure or not. It's very difficult, I think, without full blown audits um, and inspections to get to a position of comfort. Uh, and I'm hopeful that will change. Yeah, so it's uh, it's not just uh, having securing your own office infrastructure and the, and the current point, but it's it's much more uh, diverse job nowadays. And at this point, I think it's important to highlight that you mentioned earlier that knowing the knowing the uh, the risk and what's important that it's not an exercise of solely the IT security team, IT security team. So this is uh, at the end of the day, like the value of the uh, of the data, the value of the systems that that uh, that will um, that make some business processes flow and work, will be derived or uh, will be assessed by the value and the and the impact on the business itself. So the so the whole organization needs to be involved in in creating this this security inventory and this uh, this cyber resilience inventory. I'd say so. Do I assess correctly based on this that there is nowadays a significant shift in the role of IT security in the life of a company? Yeah, I mean, in the 25 plus years I've been working in this space, you know, we've seen the kind of the movement of the IT team from 
from in the basement of an organization to being present uh, at the board and, and the same is true of security as well and the fact that actually more mature organizations are giving security a seat at the table in terms of the exco and at board meetings because it is a key strategic risk for most organizations um, and with that comes some different challenges so firstly the security team need to be engaging with the business and supporting the business and in fact actually as I listen to myself use the word business, it's a little bit, um, it feels a little bit fake because quite frankly, the security team is part of the business. So, you know, what they need to be doing is, is engaging with the stakeholders across their organization and saying, okay, look, there's a bunch of stuff that we do to protect you against threats and risks that we're coming in. And there's some stuff that we need you to do as people in the organization. And we talk a bit about uh, the front line and how we can get them mm -hmm. to, to help us secure the organization. But actually, we need to remember that it's often the business activities that are introducing the risks into the organization as well, moving into new markets, offering new products and services, looking at innovation through automation or artificial intelligence. It's these things that the business will be leading the charge on, that you know the business leaders will be leading the charge on, that the security team needs to support. Um, and you're only going to be able to do that to build the relationships out with those stakeholders and make sure that they, they see you as a team that they can go to and ask for support and we help them find a solution. And I think it's been a long time path since the security team was seen as the, the engine of no, or in, I heard recently chief uh, business prevention officers was one of the terms I heard in one of our customers about um, a previous reflection on the security team. Um, that's long gone in, in, in my experience. There might be some pockets of it left, but in the main, it's long gone. But we still need to be a bit more proactive in our experience and what we see in going out engaging with business stakeholders and saying, how can we support you in your next innovation and your next great business idea in improving revenue? So that, that's, a, that's a bit of a change and a shift that we're seeing in the team. And I think that then moves into the leader of those teams, right? So whether... Uh, and again, I don't want to get into a chat about the CISO, the job title, what the role means, because that's a whole podcast and conversation that's own. But whether you're a head of security, security manager, a CISO by title or a CISO by role, you're going to be engaging with more senior members of the organization and you're going to need to be able to talk to them in a way that they understand. Um, and most boards understand risk and revenue and cost. So we would always talk to them in terms of what is the risk presented by this new business initiative, this lack of funding, this doing this initiative or not doing this initiative? Will it protect revenue? Will it increase costs? Will it lead to a substantial fine? Um, and once we start to engage and talk to people like that, then actually we do get involved more. Uh, and I know from my own experience of working in industry before I started this company, that the more you engage with those people and the more that you support them in their goals, then the more likely they are to support you. And I certainly felt that in budget bounds when we're all trying to agree where money's going to be spent mm -hmm. um, and who would support security spend and who wouldn't. So um, so I think that's a big thing. Um, and I think I think the other thing is we need to make sure that as a, as a security team that we are approachable. So when something does go wrong, we want the business, business teams, stakeholders to reach out. And I was with a, a client just yesterday, actually, where fortunately it turned out to not be a security incident. 
but a couple of members of staff were very very worried about uh, a number of emails that had come in and, and a potential call as well and actually they just came and mentioned it to the security team and said we're very worried about this and immediately we move into investigation we start looking at the emails that have come in call records and everything else and very quickly got to a position where we realized it was a false positive but we wouldn't have been aware that it was happening Mm-hmm. if the members of those team hadn't come to us and seen us as, a, as part of their support in dealing with this risk. So uh, we we often see both sides of it, but certainly starting to see that shift and, and the more approachable side of security, which is great. Mm-hmm. And see, that's, uh, that, that's what I, that's what I uh, experienced myself, is that uh, in, my, in my view, like security is always, it's almost universally will be a compromise between different factors. Most most of the time it's security versus usability, speed of business processes, employee satisfaction, etc. So it's uh, it's really important. And also this is the, the point when we need to interact more with, with the rest of the business to to make and make these compromises and choose our compromises together with the with the relevant stakeholders, not just uh just deciding on a, on a in the high castle or down in the basement, as you would say. No, I, I agree. And we go back to the point that everything in business is about risk. Whether the risk is a threat presents some threat or impact negative impacts to the organisation, or whether taking that risk is an opportunity, and we've got to support that as a security team, um, and we shouldn't look at ourselves in isolation. Yes. So most, but by now, like we mostly talked about the preparations, like how to assess, uh, how to assess uh, our our cyber uh, cyber threat repository, like or value repository, critical systems repository. How to convince stakeholders uh, on the importance of cybersecurity. Um, and let's in for the rest of the uh, like last seven eight minutes like let's talk about the like the mitigation part so there are in my view it's it's not just the preparation where where business needs to be deeply involved but it's also uh also the mitigation fails uh and uh for what we were earlier talking about like kind of a layered approach of uh of security that's uh that's usually it's it's a it's a universal approach, or it's always comes to uh, to layers of security, uh, and one of the layers of of mitigation and protection is the the, the very basic IT security practices, and the other one will be uh, will be the staff itself and and all the employees, and um, this is the area that if not overlooked, but this is something that cannot be repeated enough. <laughs> Uh, there's there's the security starts uh, here. Uh, what's your opinion yeah. on this? Yeah, I, I'm. I mean, I have to say, I, I'm guilty of this myself. But we often we often talk about security basics or security hygiene, right? As if actually these are really simple things to do, um, but they're often not, right? So um, patching an entire estate and keeping it up to date on patching. Um, seems like something really easy to do on the face of it. But then when you add in complexities around legacy environments, legacy applications, the fact that there might be um, uh, maintenance windows which do not suit patch releases, or there may be changes going in, which mean that you know, the business 
or business stakeholders do not want systems patched during that time, or they could be change free. There's all kinds of different reasons why patching might not work. And, and the complexities around legacy environments, supported environments and things. So I think the first thing to understand is that when we talk about security basics, security hygiene, we accept the fact that they can be complex to implement, but it doesn't change the fact that these are the things that we need to manage. So, you know, we've already spoken about knowing what you have, where it is and what its value is. That helps you prioritize your efforts, right? The next thing is to make sure that things are maintained. They're maintained in terms of supportability. So you get updates from your vendors, be that OS or, or applications, and that you can apply them, right? And again, you should look at some prioritization of that. So being able to assess vulnerabilities in your environment, prioritize them based on their score and whether they're being exploited in the wild and then applying the patches on that helps, but you need to keep on top of it. And again, fully understand that it's not as simple as it sounds um, and then there are challenges with it. I think the other thing, if, if we look at, you know, ransomware is a big risk for everybody at the moment, there's kind of some key things we talk about in terms of ransomware preparedness. So multi-factor authentication to all your services, strong authentication, that's a must. Because right now we don't, again, have the high walls of the castle and everyone crosses the moat and comes in to mm -hmm. use the data. It's now everywhere. And the people using it are everywhere. And they're sat at home or they're sat in an office. Or indeed, one of the colleagues I was speaking to earlier today, they sat in a boat in a canal in Europe, traveling around, working whilst getting some beautiful scenery. So we just don't know where the people are going to be. And we need some strong authentication around that as well. Um, we then need to make sure that we back up our data so that we have um, immutable copies of the critical data that we need in case anything happens to it. Right. Again, sounds simple, but it can sometimes be very complex depending on the data environment. Um, the other thing is making sure you know what to do when something goes wrong and that you practice those, right? So um, it's all very well writing a security incident process or a crisis management plan and then putting it on a shelf. And once a year, when you get due diligence from one of your customers, they go, have you got response plans? You go, yes, I have. I've dusted it off. I've reviewed it there and put it back. If something happens, everyone needs to know their roles. They also need to know what their role isn't. So one of the big things we see when we run crisis exercises with organizations is people, to use a phrase I don't particularly like, not staying in their lane. So there's people trying to make decisions which actually are outside of their remit. And then that causes confusion or sometimes debate, which you just don't have time for during one of these incidents. Um, and then... I think like with anything else, it's um, making sure that the awareness, the security awareness across the organization is up. Um, you will see, and I hear it more often than I like, that actually um, staff are your weakest link because if people will position it. We spent all this money on email filtering and IDS and IPS and all the other acronyms that we can mention in security. And then what happened was one day someone clicked on a link and then we got that somewhere. And it's like, well, yeah, because people are your weakest link. Completely wrong. Staff are your strongest defense. They're absolutely the front line. Mm -hmm. They are the people that are the easiest route into the organization because they have emotions, because they have SLAs they have to meet in their role, because they've got a number of pro um, emails they have to process in a day. And attackers know this. And, and phishing is still by far the simplest way 
to gain access into to, uh, an organization. Still the most common, um, and actually we're only seeing it going up. So if you look at the uh, anti-phishing working group, they track the number of phishing emails every quarter. Um, it was Q1 last year was the first time it went over a million. We've already seen 150% increase in the first half of this year over the whole of last year. Mm -hmm. So phishing is not going away. Um, it's also one of the three ways ransomware get into an organization. So key thing. And where does that phishing go? It goes to staff. And um, what are your staff doing? They're trying to do their job, probably under pressure. Uh, they're probably in a role where they expect to receive emails from people they don't know. So training them to say, if you don't know who it's from and it's got an attachment, don't open it, doesn't really work because that's their role. Um, but we need to give them the right skills. We need to give them the awareness of the kind of threats, the understanding of the impact, both personally, because let's be clear, they can get fished at home just as well as they can get fished at work. Um, the tools they need to understand what to do if they do see a phishing email, who do they report it to? What steps do they take? Do they delete it? Do they report it? Which deletes it? Do they forward it? Do they have to forward it as an attachment? So all these things that you have to kind of work out and make sure they understand and give them that approachable security team that we spoke about earlier. And I can tell you from my own experience, both in industry and with the customers we work with, if you get a good brand around your security team, and unfortunately there is a brand you need around it because mm -hmm. people respond to that, and you show that you are open and willing to help and you'll answer questions about, you know, we've had it before where how do I secure my home Wi-Fi? How do I stop my children looking at certain things? It takes us about five, 10 minutes to answer those kind of things that my security team would do it, right? Because it built up the relationship with the, with the um, employees in the organization. You get that, and then what you get is a very quick response. Mm -hmm. Often, we find quicker than some of our detection tools in terms of when the first email lands, so we haven't had velocity at this point, it's a single email, and it lands with someone who understands phishing, and they see that it's a possible threat, and they report it to us, then we can do something with it. Um, and we've successfully, I remember in one organization, we spent rather a lot of money doing uh, a red teaming exercise. So this is where um, uh, ethical hackers follow the route that malicious actors would do to find a way into your organization. So it's a bit like pen testing on steroids mm -hmm. in simple terms. Um, and they failed to get in through phishing because of how well we had trained our staff. Mm -hmm. um, which was great on one hand, but cost a lot of money on the other. So I kind of felt a bit put out that we spent all this money to demonstrate that what we already knew. But you can get the get the front line into the right place, get them into where they there's there's no culture. They feel like even if they get it wrong, it's not phishing. Often get a lot of people forwarding LinkedIn requests going, it looks dodgy. It's not. You've just got your email address on your profile. Um, get them into that place where they want to just go, I think something's gone wrong. So we can help them. That's the key yeah, thing. That's, I really like this, uh, let you like turn this, turn this uh, stuff is a biggest, a weakest link into a upside down and, and say it is the strongest defense if they are managed correctly. And in my experience, it's also when it's, it's not just the, not just the, um, the the security and ID security where you can leverage this this knowledge and your connection with the with the uh, with your staff, but with also, for example, we we get a real, a lot of help from all around the company when it comes to testing our product or spotting uh, spotting outages of the of the product. So it's uh, they can help if if there's there's this healthy relationship, they can help. 
unfortunately we are like approaching the 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 end of uh of the the webinar so i think at this time it's uh it's time to summarize some key takeaways and uh let's talk about what we uh what we um uh what we've been talking about so we talked about cyber resilience itself how we, we define it why is it important we talked about uh the importance to having an inventory of of all your valuable systems uh and and data and we also talked about uh how how IT security teams need to change their approach of, of, of talking to business how and also how they need to sh change their approach when it comes to uh, defining the, the security boundary of the company with the emerge of cloud uh, services and we talked about a lot a lot about and the towards the end about the human factor how staff can be uh, can be your strongest uh, line of defense instead of your your weakest link uh, and we prepared, or actually, uh, Ben was kind uh, enough to prepare some some key takeaways uh, for uh, for our lovely audience today. Uh, would you like? Would you mind Ben sharing these uh, with our, our listeners? Yeah. So, so I think as we were just talking about um, the importance of educating your staff, so protect the front line. I think it's it's almost protecting it, arming them, giving them the knowledge they need to be able to understand what the threats are, know how to report them and what actions they need to take. Um, the, the never trust, always verify, uh, kind of stolen that from the, the zero trust principles, but I think it's a great one. You know, certainly where we're moving to this very, um, uh, a very uh, devolved, and control over data in the terms of you know, we're no longer keeping it all within our own grasp, we're sharing it with third parties and cloud providers. When people want to access those data or services, we need to verify their identity. Strong authentication, additional access policies, you know, whatever it happens to be, we need to make sure that we are comfortable that they're a legitimate user with the right rights to come in and access that, that information service. Legacy is a huge issue for a lot of large organizations and for smaller organizations keeping on top of patching of their end user estate becomes complex and certainly with more and more third-party software but maintaining or removing those things which are not supportable is critical and again when you look at um the you know we've, we've always got this way and certainly the media has got this way of talking a lot about sophisticated advanced persistent threats that we have that we have to defend against in security Actually, there's some wild statistics going around at the moment, but in some of the reports I'm, I'm seeing, we're, we're talking over 80% of attacks were preventable with the technology they had, if they had maintained it properly. The, you know, actually, there, is, there are very few attacks that are sophisticated in nature. Some of them are persistent, I absolutely grant that, but when you look into it, these are known vulnerabilities, more often than not, they might not be wildly, wide, wild widely known, apologies, but they are known vulnerabilities that are being exploited. Um, you know, compromised credentials, MFA missing on VPN, you know, people not aware of their full asset list 
So whilst they put security controls on it, they haven't put it on all of it. So make sure you know you've got to maintain it or remove it. Ensure that your critical data is backed up in a way that means that it cannot be impacted by something like ransomware. Again, met an organization who was extremely proud of the fact that they stored their backup in three locations to ensure that they can maintain the integrity. Unfortunately, all three of those locations were connected to the network that got hit by ransomware. So we ended up in a situation where they didn't have a viable backup to, uh, to restore from. Um, and be aware, be prepared and improve. And this goes back to know what your risks are, the threats and what that impact will be to your business. Prepare a plan to, to again, go back to withstand, absorb and recover from it. So think about your recovery plans, your security instant plan, crisis management plan, your business continuity plans, your DR plan. Practice them. Practice the technology ones with the, the IT ones with the IT teams. Crisis management, practice that with the leaders within the business, the people that are going to be doing the external comms, working with legal, making decisions around paying ransom. And get lessons from that and feed that back into those processes. And don't just practice it once. As much as people may moan and groan about it, get into periodic practices, looking at changes that might happen to your business that need to be reflected within those plans. Um, and if you if you kind of follow those five pieces, then actually you start to remove a lot of the key um, the key risks that are that are often exploited or rather are realised through the exploitation of vulnerabilities from malicious external users. You know, when you look at um, when you look at ransomware, they either get in through phishing through a compromised account that doesn't have MFA on it, um, or through a vulnerability in your perimeter. And the three main ways they get in. You're maintaining your software when it's up to date. You won't be presenting, or less likely to be presenting vulnerabilities on the perimeter. If you're educating your staff around protecting their accounts and you've implemented MFA, compromised accounts becomes less of a problem. And if you're educating your staff around phishing and showing them how to respond to it quickly, that becomes less of a risk as well. Doesn't mean there's no silver bullet. There's no way we're going to mitigate all cyber risk to the point that you will never have an impact. But the idea is about reducing the likelihood as much as possible and then managing the impact through your plans. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ben. It was it was really a really good conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. And we touched many important topics. And the good thing is that we still have some time for from some questions from the from the audience. So there, the first uh, question would be right away. You you almost answered that uh, in your previous uh, um, on the previous slide that can you ever be on top of all your security risks? So I may jump this one, and uh, uh, let's see another one. Yeah, we talked about stuff. Uh, and and to have a good relationship of the staff. And uh, someone asked that, how do you get people interested in security when they do not see it as part of their job role? So um, not subject them to a 30-minute death by slide training once a year <laughs> with 10 randomized questions after it would be a good start. And, and unfortunately, organizations are still taking that approach because they need to tick a box that says we do security training. Um, I am very opposed to that approach based on the amount of training that we have to go through when we work as an extension to our clients team and the irony is when you're supporting clients in security when you become an extension of their team you have to do their training 
So all of my team and myself and some clients, we have to sit there and go through these slides. And I like security. I mean, I've been doing it for 25 plus years, right? So I enjoy the topic, but even I get turned off when we can't mm. go through those training. It's all about, um, so let's be clear. If someone works in finance or someone works in a contact center or someone works um, on, a, on a shop floor, they're not there because they want to be the most secure member of their team. They're there because they've probably got, hopefully got an interest in the job that they're doing. Like all of us, they're financially driven and they've got bills to pay. Um, and they're going to want to do the job as well as they can, hopefully. The first thing they're thinking is not, do I do this in the most secure way? And actually, it, as, as unpalatable as it is, um, lots of people will not understand the value of someone else's personal data or the company's data while they're using it to do their job because they're just trying to get their job done. So the best way we found, and it's something we've been talking about for years, is you train people on the threats that they face as individuals. You make them understand the impacts they could face as people if their personal data was lost or used by criminals for identity theft or um, impersonation. Um, and, and it's at that point you then bring it back to, well, now we have all of this data in our organisation and we need to protect it from exactly the same kind of things. And again, as we've spoken about, making the security team approachable, giving giving them someone they can ask. There's multiple ways you can do that. Um, there's platforms, awareness platforms that have that kind of um, both an FAQ and an ability to interact and ask questions on it. it can be faceless, so they're just asking a team and the team responds. Or depending on the kind of people you have in that, that uh, um, people you have in those in those security teams, you could actually nominate some people to be that interface between you, between your team and the rest of the business. But give them something they can ask questions to. How do I, how do I ensure that my data on my iPhone is on my personal iPhone is encrypted? Oh well, we've got a little cheat sheet over here that tells you how to do that. You know, it, what's the risks of me? We used to do something in uh, financial services with our fraud team uh, who took the lead on it. And they used to do the 12 frauds of Christmas. And we used to hand that out to everyone in the organization at Christmas to say, yeah, Christmas is coming. This is a great time for identity theft and, and, and financial loss. These are the kind of things that you need to look out for. Give them stuff that's relevant to them. And you'll soon find they go, actually, that's quite worrying that all of this stuff can happen to me. And then you start finding they, they tell you more about practices they're seeing at work that they might not think are secure. Or, you know, and again, you might want to give them a, like whistleblowing an anonymous forum in which they can go, I've seen this behavior um, and I would like it addressed. It's all about engagement. You get people to realize the short answer to this very long answer that I'm giving you, get people to realize the risks they face. They're going to be much more interested in protecting data. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that. Like what I see as a tendency in, in Treasury as well, that as we are a, a privacy conscious company, conscious of the privacy of our users or customers, then it's sometimes this lands as our employees being much more cautious of their own privacy in their in their private life. So uh, it, it's I really see how this approach to, could work because that's if it works the other way around, then it it should work uh, this way as you described. So let's see another question. Um, yeah, successful breaches. Someone uh, would like to ask about. Do you see any commonalities 
observe between successful breaches? There, there are some common term, common themes. Yeah, we 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 touched on some of those for ransomware. You know, there's the, as we mentioned the three entry points: it's phishing, compromised accounts, and lack of MFA or weaknesses in the perimeter. And um, and actually, as I mentioned before, phishing is still um, in there as the top one of the top ways of of gaining entry to an organization. It's simple. It plays on human nature. Um, it can be a, a motive in theme. So you know, these things are simple. We see high volumes of it. We're, re, we're currently seeing an increase in QR phishing. So, and, and QR phishing is quite interesting. So it's an email with a QR code in it mm. saying to get your document or to access your files, scan this QR code. The reason they do that is you do it on your phone. Your phone isn't connected to the same corporate network. It's probably on a guest network. If it's connected to a network at all, it might be on uh, 4G or 5G, it doesn't have the same corporate controls on that network. So therefore, they can start to land malicious links and malicious software much easier than trying to get you to click on a link on your, your endpoint. They're starting to realize that some of the endpoint protection software is getting very clever and the URL rewriting stuff as well. Um, but generally, you will find that um, the entry points as described would be the way they've got in. MFA, lack of MFA is a real key reason for it. And then um, lack of patching, lack of stopping on top, staying on top of those vulnerabilities and not understanding the assets you need to protect. So you might have protected 99% of your estate and then they're going to play in that 1% because you haven't got visibility, you haven't got EDR on it, you're not um, patching it, whatever the reason is. And we've seen in, in incidents that we've been uh, part of the response team to, you can see the threat actor logging onto a machine going, well, that's got an EDR solution on it. Uh, it's, it's one of the latest versions of the operating system that's patched. And they back out. And then they land on another machine and they go, it's interesting, this one doesn't have EDR. Oh, and it's an older version of operating system. And it's missing a whole load of patches. And they stay there longer, much longer. And actually, in most cases, camp out on systems like that. Because mm -hmm. it, they're, in, they're in the shadow at that point. So for us, MFA, it's user awareness managing vulnerabilities, asset management. They're the kind of top commonalities. Weaknesses first. Yeah, in interesting. And it's not that surprising uh, if, if you think about it. Okay, thank you very much, Ben. Uh, unfortunately, our time is up. We have uh, a couple of more questions uh, in the, in the Q&A section. I will make sure that uh, we will answer these questions in writing uh, later today or for tomorrow. So your question will be uh, will be answered uh, and you will find the, the responses um, uh, later on. So I really like to thank you uh, thank our audience for their questions and their uh, and their their interest in our topic. Uh, and Ben, I would like to thank you again for being with, here with us today and uh, I would like to draw your attention uh, to our next webinar uh, in this series. It's going uh, uh, it's going to be on the second of November, same time uh, as today. Uh, and I also would like to uh, uh, draw your attention to to our websites and uh, the IC con ICA consultancy's website as well, where you can find the uh, and discover more information uh, on what we are doing, what 
Ben's company is doing, and also you can find uh, also the on-demand recordings of, of this webinar and all our previous webinars as well. Thank you very much for your attention and thank you, Ben, for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much.